Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Michael Kaplan. His last name is spelled C-A-P-L-A-N. And he's just finished an excellent documentary, which I watched yesterday. The title of the documentary is Oliver in the Movie. And it will be out in two days, October 1st, 2021. Uh, people go check that out. But Mr. Kaplan is an independent film director, producer, and teacher. He, The film before this was titled A Magical Vision which is a feature-length documentary that spotlights Eugene Berger, a magician and guru of the magical arts, and it has been shown in festivals from Chicago to India and won an audience award at the Spirit Enlightened Film Festival. He's also directed Stones from the Soil, a documentary about his father that showed on National PBS in 2005. He's an associate professor in the Cinema, Art, and Science Department at Columbia College in Chicago. And uh, this movie, had the background really is Chicago. It's almost... Part of the story is this uh, interesting part of the city that Algren wrote about and lived in. But uh, director Michael Kaplan can talk more about that. So, Michael Kaplan, are you there? Yes, I am. Good awesome. to talk to you, William. Good, great, great, uh, great to have you. I'm, uh, delighted that you agreed to the interview. Really, an interesting topic. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the subject of Algren and how what led you to start this, the production on this documentary? Well, I've been making films and videos for uh, probably about 25 years now. And um, uh, over the last um, 20 years, I really focused on um, documentaries. And um, you mentioned uh, two of my previous documentaries. Um, and uh, I was really in the midst of finishing up my previous documentary about Eugene Berger, The Magician, when I uh, met the photographer Art Shea at a uh, gallery opening in Chicago, and Art at that time was a young, spry 87 years old, and uh, uh, Art was a real trip. He was a real character, originally from Brooklyn, and a little short fireplug of a guy who had traveled all over the world taking pictures of everybody from presidents to movie stars, but um, what I knew him as was the photographer of uh, Nelson Algren. Growing up in Chicago, Nelson Algren was just someone that you knew about who wrote about the people at the bottom of the social spectrum. And if you had seen a photograph of Algren, you had seen Archie's work because he was pretty much the dominant uh, photographer of Algren. And so when I met him, I just said, uh, well, Mr. Shea, I've always loved your work about Nelson Algren. And he said, what do you do? I told him and he said, well, you should, you, you should do a documentary about Nelson Algren. And I was kind of shocked that no one had at that point. And um, something I always tell my students is be careful what you say yes to, because I said yes. And then, you know, many years later, we, 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 finally ended up with this uh, documentary about Nelson Algren. And for people who may not know, can you just give a brief background of Nelson Algren and kind of what led him to writing and kind of what he wrote about? Well, Nelson Algren was born in Detroit, but grew up um, in Chicago. His family moved when he was at a pretty young age. And uh, he grew up um, something also I did not know on the about two blocks away from where I live on the northwest side of Chicago. And uh, his father was working class. He was a, a, a car mechanic. And um, Algren uh, 
grew up um, thinking that he would be a journalist. That's what he wanted to do. So he went to uh, the University of Illinois in Chicago, and he was in the midst of getting his degree to be a journalist when uh, the depression hit. And that really, for him and for a lot of people, just changed everything about his life. He ended up uh, going on the road, um, taking, a, you know, kind of bumming around the country, ended up in Texas, ended up getting arrested for stealing a typewriter while he was in Texas. Um, and when he came back to Chicago, um, he had already started writing. And um, simultaneously, the WPA had been formed. And one of the programs they had was uh, it uh, basically supported writers and other artists to um, communicate what was going on around the country to the rest of the country. Um, there's actually a really great book that just came out about that program because it really changed the lives of so many people. Um, people like Richard Wright and uh, Studs Terkel and uh, Algren was one of those people. And so it was at that point um, in the uh, late 30s, early 40s that he started um, writing about the people who society had left behind, the people who were the the addicts, the uh, the drunks, the sex workers, um, the people that you know didn't really get a second look from society. So that was really what put him into that that path of writing about that part of society. Right. So he kind of saw the other side that maybe not as many people thought was glamorous, but he seemed to really mix with those people as well. Would you agree with that? Oh my gosh, yeah. He he lived in the neighborhood, Wicker Park, which is now a totally um, kind of gentrified, very nice area. But at the time, it was kind of a slum. And he lived there in a little one-room uh, apartment. Um, he had to go to the YMCA to take a shower. You know, I mean, he was living really uh, small. And um, the people he wrote about were the people on his street. So he he... He was really he had a commitment to that that telling those stories and telling them from close up, not just from afar. And he was kind of that sensibility. He got he got pinched for stealing a typewriter in Texas. He was interested in selling stuff on the black market uh, while he was in the war, World War II. So he kind of seemed a little scrappy, like he was uh, one of those people, you know, just trying to get by the people that he wrote about, really. Um can you talk about how he kind of made it in the literary world, what his book was, and uh, how he kind of made his mark? Well, he had written several books. Uh, he had written a novel, um, Somewhere, Someone in Boots, um, which uh, he later just kind of left off his list. He, he kind of disavowed it. Um, but then he went on uh, to uh, really uh, the first... Uh, novel of, of note was called Never Come Morning. And it was uh, in the early 40s. And it was really set during in, in that that world uh, that I've been talking about, um, the world around him and the of the people who were the dispossessed. Um, after that, he wrote a collection of short stories called The Neon Wilderness, which just its name, you know, kind of tells you so much about what uh, uh, the big cities were becoming in the U.S. after World War II. Um, this this place, you know, of of kind of glitz and glamour, but 
you know, also a place where there were lots of uh, people who were not getting the benefit of um, what was starting to happen in the U.S. And it so was he, really, a, and it was, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, he, he was very sensitive to kind of the class situation where there was definitely an under dispossessed, yes, people who were definitely, he says, I think the, uh, the back of the of the billboard, the people who live behind the billboard. Right. Correct. Correct. And it, it was after that that he he wrote what most people consider his magnus opus, which was um, a Man with a Golden Arm, which later got made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. Um, and a Man with a Golden Arm was you know a sprawling five six hundred page uh, novel that really dug into um, this one character, Frankie Machine who had come out of World War II and was a morphine addict. Um, he was also a, a drummer, a jazz drummer, and he was also a, a dealer of cards. He was a poker dealer. And so the, the idea of the man with the golden arm had a, a kind of a two-sided um, meaning because it was about someone who was an addict, but also someone who, who played poker. And that... Um, really catapulted him into the the mainstream. He uh the book won the first National Book Award, which was in 1950. Um uh Eleanor Roosevelt awarded it to him. And he was he was all of a sudden he had he had something close to a bestseller. And that really um made him for a while, <laughs> not for as long as you might think, made him a kind of a, a household name, someone that uh, people knew and would read in book clubs and and uh, was uh, someone that was discussed, you know, in the press. And he was also kind of uh, suppressed. Some people thought he was a little bit too over the edge, right? Like I think there was something the Polish Roman Catholic Legion complained about his writing, wow, things like that. And he wrote about Pol Polish people, which I think is interesting too. He, yeah, I mean, a lot of the neighborhood that he lived in was uh, Polish immigrants, um, and uh, the yes, the the the, <laughs> the the Roman Catholic Church, the the Polish uh, Catholic, uh, I forgot community. They 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 wrote up against him. Um, there were a lot of pushback. Uh, later on, when he wrote Chicago City on the Make, um, which was kind of this love and hate letter to Chicago, he got lots of pushback from the tourist industry. People felt like he made Chicago look like not a really nice place. And so um, he, uh, he he definitely was always kind of fighting, you know, the, the power. Um, and then later on, and it's not in the movie, um, but uh, he, uh, the FBI actually uh, kept a file on him and made it um, difficult for him to travel for a while because he could not get a passport. So he, he was, he, he ran into a lot of roadblocks. Right. And so he had this kind of underground thing, but he also, because he came from there, you know, like there's a couple of people who remarked in your film that his ear for their cadence of their talk and the way that the locals in Chicago talked, like he had it down, like that was part of his realism or his authenticity, right? Right. It was, it was very much, um, you know, you know, he wrote from the conversations that he had with the people in the bars on the street, you know, these were firsthand accounts. Um, 
in many ways, it was kind of a, a predecessor to um, you know the the modern journalism that kind of the new journalism that came out in the '60s with Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe, where he was he was in the story. He wasn't a character in the story, but he was in the story in that this was something that he wrote from hundreds of hours of being in this community and talking to people and getting the stories. Um, so when he wrote about the people, he was not a tourist, as we say, coming in and just kind of spending a couple of weeks and, you know, getting all this research and then going home. You know, he, he did, you know, he, this was his life, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. You know? Right. And he lived that. I think some, one of the persons in your film quoted, he wasn't a voyeur. He was among his people, horse betting, gambling, drinking, you know, kind of living kind of a beat, beat writers type of life in Chicago. And it is interesting in the film, you have all these people from Chicago commenting on Algren and, uh, how, what, a, what a cultural influence he was. So you have Billy Corgan, uh, William Friedkin, the director of Invasion of the Body Statues. I can't remember his name right now, but like really interesting characters who talked about him from their perspective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, he, uh, you know, he he definitely um, was part of that, you know, community. Uh, Richard, um, not Richard Kaufman, uh, Philip Kaufman, Kaufman. Uh, as the director you're thinking of. Yeah, I mean... I ran into people who knew him when they were young, like Friedkin and Kaufman actually, you know, knew him and spent time with him and did things with uh, him when they were young, growing up in Chicago in the sixties. But uh, you know, the people who knew him um, knew about his commitment and um, yes, he also liked to have a good time. You know, he wasn't like the kind of prototypical beat uh, writer and that he didn't feel like he had to become a drug user, you know, in order to write about addicts. Um, but he certainly, you know, he lived that life of playing poker and hanging in the bars. And, uh, you know, he liked to box and he liked to go see boxing matches. Um, he, uh, he would go to the horse, you know, the, to the racing track. Um, he, you know, he definitely, he knew how to have a good time. That was for sure. But it wasn't about, um, you know, just getting wasted, you know, like, uh, you know, Hunter Thompson, where he would feel like he'd have to take 20 drugs before he could write about anything. You know, Auburn was, he was, a, he was a mix of a journalist and a fiction writer, because he would take the journalistic research and then write fiction about it. Right. And you do mention like, uh, Hunter S. Thompson quoted from A Walk on the Wild Side, really complimented Algren. I thought that was a really interesting segment you had. But also he uh, kind of mixed with some high-end literary figures. Can you talk about his relationship to Simone de Beauvoir? So, I mean, really notable. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he, he could he could he could also mingle with the, you know, the, the, the glitterati. Um, he could, uh, you know, go to Lakeshore Drive and hang out with the you know, the rich people who loved to hear, you know, this esteemed man who had won these awards. Um, and it was through knowing some of those people that uh, Simone de Beauvoir was told by a friend of hers to call up Nelson Algren when she came to Chicago. And um, they, 
you know, she did, and they immediately became lovers and had this extended um, five, six year long love affair, um, which really lasted for the rest of uh, Algren's life. But the the most intimate part, the the most intense part, was uh, those five, six years, and. Yes, he when he got to go to Paris, he hung out with all of the, you know, literati in the left bank and he could do that, you know, but that was not where he wanted to be. He wanted to um, go and hang out and have a few drinks and then he wanted to go back to where he was living, you know, and it's just kind of, you know, little, little flat with, uh, you know, his books stacked up and newspapers and stuff on the walls and, you know, just really, um, it was not what he was yearning for, you know, um, uh, he was not going back to the suburbs or going, you know, back to Hyde Park and just, you know, living the middle-class lifestyle. He, he, he lived the life that he wrote about. Right. So he didn't seem to be really attracted to that kind of cultural elite of Beauvoir and Sartre and all these other characters. Uh, but it was interesting that he thought that I think you stated in the book she was his intellectual equal. So somebody externally you would see walking down the street didn't look like maybe a college professor, but obviously super intelligent guy and uh, really kind of a character. And he kind of did. He was really a dedicated writer. I mean, my impression was he was a very dedicated writer who didn't maintain his relate. He had been in and out of relationships frequently and kind of bounced around. Did, did you think that his writing career prevented him from having long-term relationships? Well, he's got a really famous quote, which is, if you want to be a successful writer, be a bachelor. You know, he really felt like um, uh, he didn't want something that would um, weigh him down. So he got married, then got divorced, um, then um, married the same woman again, later on and divorced, then married someone else and divorced. He, he was never married for more than about two years. Um, you know, ironically, it was really um, de Beauvoir, which was to him his one true love. And uh, he would have married her. Um, I don't know if it would have worked. I don't think it would have. But, uh, you know, um, he uh, he was not someone who wanted to get weighed down except for de Beauvoir. And that was, you know, one of the, the great kind of sadnesses for him is that they could never reconcile their different lifestyles. And she was kind of like, a. it seemed like it was a love triangle too. There was other things involved pulling her away. Um, but that yeah. wasn't his only disappointment. He had kind of had some success in Hollywood, at least with his writing. But uh, can you explain what his impressions were with how his works were made into films? Well, it's it's an old story, you know, that uh, the writers almost never like the, the books that get made from their work. And um, he uh, he he was a stubborn guy, you know. So when he went out to uh, work with Otto Preminger on Man with the Golden Arm, he um, he they you know, they came to blows very quickly um, and he left after about a week and a half, you know, um, because they could just not work together. And he, he got paid, you know, what by today, um, 
the equivalent was, you know, not a terrible amount of money, but given, you know, what could have happened if he had really uh, had a good negotiator, a good agent, he, he kind of got screwed. And that happened also with his, uh, the second book that got made into a film, um, Walk on the Wild Side. So um, he, uh, you know, he, he wanted to be known, he liked being known as a writer, but also there was a part of him that resisted it. He didn't want the, you know, the glamour because he was really worried that he would lose his connection to the, the the subject matter that he wanted to write about, you know, um, you know, uh, Russell Banks has this great quote, this, you know, the amazing novelist Russell Banks knew Algren when he was very young. And um, Russell Banks said, you know, we, we, we all worship that, that bitch goddess fame, you know, but then we also kind of push her away. And, and Algren was really kind of the embodiment of that, you know, that he just, he didn't want to, you know, just have nonstop um, parties and, uh, you know, literary events. He wanted to be able to return back to the source. Right. And the also interesting aspect of his character is he didn't seem to take himself too seriously. Like maybe an author thinks of himself as very profound, but he seems to really have kind of a funny aspect to him. And everybody, like people mentioned in the movie, this is like one of the funniest people they've ever met. Yeah, he he definitely could. He, he he was not afraid to be a clown. You know, he would uh, he would he any 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 nice clothes that he got, he had gotten from Goodwill. You know, I mean, he was he was a guy, you know, he would wear a rope for a belt, you know, to a really nice kind of shishi event just because it was kind of his way of, you know, sticking his thumb in the eyes of, you know, the people who uh, were a little bit more elite. Um, so, uh, you know, he, um, he did not want to, you know, embrace that life. And uh, he kind of, you know, stayed away from it. And now I've forgotten the question that you asked. Oh, I was just saying that it was just in, like for somebody who, who was a uh, serious, saw himself as a writer, oh, right. one aspect yeah, right. of his character was that he was kind of like he was, I think you said he went to improvs and joked around. Yeah, absolutely. He would, he would hang out with, he'd go to Second City and hang out there. Um, he, uh, he was a kind of a goof and his writing could be comic too. It was really serious, but something like Walk on the Wild Side is kind of a, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a goofy protagonist who doesn't, you know, really get what it is that he doesn't get, you know, is kind of oblivious. He thinks that he's someone who's really kind of um, on top of everything, but doesn't understand that he really has no clue what's going on. So he could write comedy. Um, something he wrote a lot more into the 60s um, were, were more kind of comic little pieces. Um, and as just a person to hang out with, he could definitely just uh, be very, very funny. So it was not about um, just, you know, I'm doing this, this is serious and, you know, don't interrupt my serious work. He, he recognized that you had to be able to laugh sometimes, even at yourself. And he kind of, some of his, I mean, you say in the film that some of his films, I mean, books became sold as Pulp Fiction. Where do you think yeah. Oliver... Algren's work deserves to be sitting in kind of current literary perspective. Oh, it's it's got to be kind. I mean, 
the reason we made this um, and spend so much time on it is because it should be part of, you know, just the American, you know, the standard of American literature. It should be, you know, taught in any kind of a survey course of American literature. Um, he, his work really embodied um, what America was like in the mid 20th century. And um, his, uh, his work is admired and respected by so many people, other writers, other artists, um, who understood that not just what he wrote about, the, but the way he wrote about it. He, he had a style that was unique, that was something that he worked hard on. And he was, he was a craftsman, you know, he, he cared about the way in which he wrote. And so, you know, people like Hemingway said he was uh, second on, only to Faulkner, William Faulkner, as a, an American writer. And so he should just be part of the canon of American writing. And one of the things that he didn't have that many writers do is this skill of self-promotion, whether they wear fancy clothes or they are going on circuits or hobnobbing with people. He didn't seem to, he seemed to be the opposite. Can you talk about how how that that sensibility affected his appreciation of his work? Well, it was a problem, you know, we're, we're, he wasn't in the internet age, but the reality is, you know, it's always been about promotion, you know, I mean, from F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, to Hemingway, these were people that got known because of kind of their persona. Um, and even, you know, amongst, Algren's contemporaries, people like Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow, um, had a way of kind of presenting themselves in a way that felt comfortable to the people who, you know, wanted to celebrate them. Um, and he, he just thought, you know, that that was not part of his job. He, he felt like his job was to write. Um, he didn't feel like his job was to promote himself. Um, he would go, he'd go on TV, he'd go on a radio show, um, and talk about his work if he was invited, but he was not out there kind of hobnobbing in order to maximize his visibility. Right. He just that, felt like the work should cut, should, you know, speak for itself. And that, right. that's, that's a problem. It's a problem today. You know, we see that in, you know, the internet age that if you're not out there, you know, doing the social media thing, then uh, it, it can hurt you because people may not find you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can speak to that from experience. It's so important. And now some of these other writers doing that, their almost skill was in self-promotion than actually writing, you know. But you see how personas helped all of these authors sell books, Hunter S. Thompson, Tough Guy, Hell's Angels, all that stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was certainly great at that. Uh, Thompson, you know, he put himself out there as like the the crazy guy who would do right. anything. Absolutely. Right. And so when you went about kind of compiling, I mean, the pictures are fantastic. There's all kinds of pictures of him with Studs Terkel, all these other characters from Chicago. What was it like kind of, did you get a lot of assistance from Shay, Or how did you find all of the footage and... and Photography. Do you mind talking about that? No, not at all. 
So like I said, what started this whole process was meeting Art Shea, and I knew that if I couldn't get access to his work, that um, there would be no way to make a good Nelson Algren movie. Um, and a huge portion of the uh, still black and white photos that we include in the movie are Art Shea's work, um, not just of Algren, but of you know what life on, in the street and in the poorer areas of the city were like. Um, we did find a huge amount of other photos and uh, some uh, video as well, um, mostly through the Algren archive, um, which uh, we spent uh, many, many days, long days going through, finding lots of letters uh, back and forth between different people um, and, Algren writing to people and them writing back. Um, you know, I I wish if there's something I would, you know, have loved to have had different about the movie, it would have been more film footage. You know, that's the one thing we did not have, could not find a lot of, but we did find some nice footage of him. Um, and uh, that was really where most of it came from, was uh, from our time at the Algren archive. Gotcha. And just one last question. I mean, what do you think Algren's perception of himself after he'd written his 11 books, many articles, The Atlantic? How do you think that? I mean, do you I mean, I got a sense that he might have left Chicago, moved east out of kind of a bitterness or emptiness for not being appreciated. Would you agree with that? He became very bitter near the end of his life. And it's really unfortunate. Um, he, he felt like he was no longer appreciated in Chicago. Um, and uh he took this opportunity to go out east and write about uh, the Hurricane Carter murder case um, and uh, kind of settled ultimately in, uh, in Sag Harbor on Long Island um, and uh, kind of at that point was embraced late to the party, mind you, but he was embraced by the, the, the literary elite out east people like kurt vonnegut um salman rushdie all became really supportive and uh uh fans of algren but yeah he really he really felt like uh, ultimately he was no longer appreciated in his in his own city that people had gone on to people like saul bellow who wrote about the middle class you know and that algren's perspective was not you know was not welcome and so yeah he he kind of uh he kind of said uh you know screw all this i'm moving on right and sag harbor was kind of like a literary enclave right there were other writers oh my gosh there. yeah so. yeah yeah there were there were a ton of people out there like vonnegut and um he he had several years of just living you know on the ocean and feeling like um yeah, the life, you know, life has worked out pretty well for me, you know, so it, it kind of, um, you know, had a somewhat of a happy ending, you know, um, in that uh, he was appreciated near the end of his life. And just before the end of his life, he had gotten um, what had always been denied to him, which was membership in the uh, American Academy of Arts and Letters. And uh uh, which was kind of the embodiment of, you know, being accepted by the mainstream literary uh, community. And um, 
then he, you know, had a heart attack and died before he could even, you know, go to the uh, occasion to to get to be celebrated and be feted. So it was kind of this bittersweet ending to his life. Yeah, it almost is like he li he lived kind of a life like the characters he wrote about in a way. You know, like that was a reflection of him and the way his life kind of worked out. Um, where I mean, this movie comes out in two days. Where's the best place for people to watch it? Algren the well, movie. We are getting a, a small theatrical run. Um, it's going to be opening in Los Angeles um, on October 1st, playing at uh, multiple uh, Lemley theaters. Um, and if you're not in L.A., um, so first, if you are in L.A., please come out, support independent documentary work. It would be great. Um, I'm going to be out there on uh, Saturday night, October 2nd, to uh, introduce it and do a Q&A. But if you're not in L.A. or can't get to the uh, movies in the theater, um, it's going to be available streaming um, through several of um, several Chicago based uh, theaters like the Gene Siskel Film Theater and the Music Box Theater. And they'll have it available streaming um, kind of in the what we call the, the virtual uh, theatrical mode. Um, and then next year, um, you know, the, the goal is to uh, get it out onto one of the uh, streamers like a Netflix or a Hulu, you know, depending on how things go. But uh, right now, you know, um, so starting uh, October 15th, it'll be available um, through those two theaters, the Gene Siskel Theater and the Music Box Theater. Great. So then supporting independent media is so important too. you know, you encourage and encourages the furtherance of the creation of films like this. So, you get oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you, the website that I'm showing on YouTube for people who aren't watching YouTube is Algren the movie, all one word dot com, Algren the movie dot com. And is, is that website the best place to contact you if people want to reach out to you, Michael? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you can also see we've got the usual, you know, social media, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And those are all available, you know, through AugurinTheMovie.com. And that would be the best way to contact us. You know, you can send us an email. Um and uh, we we love to hear about it because you know we we are kind of dedicated to spreading the word of Nelson Algren. Great. And is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up, or before I wrap it up? Well, I think one of the things that uh, is so striking to me about uh, you know the life we live today in the in the United States is the names and the places and maybe the ethnic groups have changed, but the reality is. The world that Algren wrote about back in the 40s and 50s is still here in America. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that this wakes people up, who the people who may want to address those stories, because there are still those stories to tell. And those are really important to, to tell those stories about the people who are not, who are living on the wrong side of the billboard, as, as Algren said, you know, who, have, who don't have a Chevy in their garage, you know and two kids and a white picket fence. Lots of people who are still waiting for the American dream to happen. And um, that's something that uh, we hope Algren inspires people to do, is to investigate and take a look at the America that is still not a place for 
you know, that has not gotten everybody on board. Right. That's so true. Again, the title of the documentary is Algren the Movie. And the guest today is the director, Michael Kaplan, C-A-P-L-A-N. And again, the website is algrinthemovie.com. So you can go check it out there. And uh, its release is October 2nd or October 1st in L.A., then out of two spots. I'll try to put these in the show notes, the two spots in the Chicago Cisco Theater. And then uh, good luck with just uh, further distribution of your film, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks a lot, William. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, Stay there. Bye-bye. Stay there. Okay.